Is my microphone powerful enough to project my dreams into infinity? If it's not in and of itself, then what can I build as an apparatus to launch my aspirations into the depths of the zeitgeist? Please, I call upon you. Help me. We need a renaissance of enlightened thought, of empowered actions, compassionate hearts, free thinking minds. I call upon you all. We must show the way for the others. of love and abundance conscious co-creators thank you for once again tuning into the waking life podcast i am your brother and confidant on this esoteric sojourn of self cody wilcox not a day goes by where i'm not just showered with appreciation and filled with gratitude from all of the well wishes and beautiful words from people across the world that I hope to meet one day but even if we don't I just cherish and I treasure the sentiments and the energy being shared like thank you thank you so much many listeners of this podcast probably found it through my Instagram page dream 3 is 3 destiny 3 and Shout outs to everybody from there. Like, holy fuck. You guys. You guys are so immensely beautiful. Like, this is probably where I get about 77% of all of that love that I was just glowing over. It is absolutely tremendous. So yeah, I just wanted to carve out a little time at the beginning here. Just to be so unapologetically reverent. Like, I cannot convey this message clearly to enough of you, but you all are the reason I do this. To know that there are other people out there that care about these things. To know that there are others out there like me. Thousands, if not millions of us. It gives me so much hope for the future. 
and I can I can see it guys I can see a future where we are finally living in heaven on earth living in peace profound guys it is gonna happen and to give you guys something so that you can see what I'm seeing let me read the end of a Neville Goddard lecture entitled consciousness is the one and only reality Even though the chair on which you are now seated seems hard and does not lend itself to meditation, you can, by imagination, make it the most comfortable chair in the world. Let me now define the technique as I want you to employ it. I trust each one of you came here tonight with a clear picture of your desire. Do not say it is impossible. Do you want it? You do not have to use your moral code to realize it. It is altogether outside of the reach of your code. Consciousness is the one and only reality. Therefore, we must form the object of our desire out of our own consciousness. People have a habit of slighting the importance of simple things, and the suggestion to create a state akin to sleep in order to aid you in assuming that which reason and your senses deny is one of the simple things you might slight. However, this simple formula for changing the future, which was discovered by ancient teachers and given to us in the Bible, can be proved by all. The first step in changing the future is desire, that is, define your objective, know definitely what you want. Second, construct an event which you believe you would encounter following the fulfillment of your desire. An event which implies fulfillment of your desire. Something which will have the action of self-predominant. The third step is to immobilize the physical body and induce a state akin to sleep. Then mentally feel yourself right into the proposed action. Imagine all the while that you are actually performing the action here and now. You must participate in the imaginary action, not merely stand back and look on but feel that you are actually performing the action so that the imaginary sensation is real to you. It is important always to remember that the proposed action must be one which follows the fulfillment of your desire, one which implies fulfillment. For example, suppose you desired promotion in the office, then being congratulated would be an event you would encounter following the fulfillment of your desire. Having selected this action as the one you will experience in imagination to imply promotion in office, immobilize your physical body and induce a state bordering on sleep, a drowsy state, but one in which you are still able to control the direction of your thoughts, a state in which you are attentive without effort. Then visualize a friend standing before you. Put your imaginary hand into his. Feel it to be solid and real and carry on an imaginary conversation with him in harmony with the feeling of having been promoted. You do not have to visualize yourself at a distance in point of space or at a distance in point of time being congratulated on your good fortune. Instead, you make elsewhere here in the future now. The difference between feeling yourself in action here and now and visualizing yourself in action as though you were on a motion picture screen is the difference between success and failure. 
The difference will be appreciated if you will now visualize yourself climbing a ladder. Then, with eyelids closed, imagine that a ladder is right in front of you and feel yourself actually climbing it. Experience has taught me to restrict the imaginary action which implies fulfillment of the desire, to condense the idea into a single act, and to reenact it over and over until it has the feeling of reality. Otherwise, your attention will wander off along an associational track, and hosts of associated images will be presented to your attention, and in a few seconds they will lead you hundreds of miles away from your objective and point of space and years and point of time. If you decide to climb a particular flight of stairs because that is the likely event to follow the fulfillment of your desire, then you must restrict the action to climbing that particular flight of stairs. Should your attention wander off, bring it back to its task of climbing that flight of stairs, and keep on doing so until the imaginary action has all the solidity and distinctness of reality. The idea must be maintained in the mind without any sensible effort on your part, you must, with the minimum of effort, permeate the mind with the feeling of the wish fulfilled. Drowsiness facilitates change because it favors attention without effort, but it must not be pushed to the state of sleep in which you are no longer able to control the movements of your actions, but a moderate degree of drowsiness in which you are still able to direct your thoughts. A most effective way to embody a desire is to assume the feeling of the wish fulfilled and then, in a relaxed and drowsy state, repeat over and over again like a lullaby. Any short phrase which implies fulfillment of your desire, such as thank you, thank you, thank you, as though you are addressed a higher power for having given you that which you desired. I know that when this course comes to an end Friday, many of you here will be able to tell me that you have realized your objectives. Two weeks ago I left the platform and went to the door to shake hands with the audience. I am safe in saying that at least 35 out of the class of 135 told me which they desired when they joined this class they had already realized. This happened only two weeks ago. I did nothing to bring it to pass save to give them this technique of prayer. You need do nothing to bring it to pass, save apply this technique of prayer. With your eyes closed and your physical body immobilized, induce a state akin to sleep and enter into the action as though you were the actor playing the part. Experience in imagination what you would experience in the flesh were you in possession of your objective. Make it elsewhere here and then now. And the greater you, using a larger focus, will use all means, and call them good, which tend toward the production of that which you have assumed. You are relieved of all responsibility to make it so, because as you imagine and feel, it is so your dimensionally larger self determines the means. Do not think for one moment that someone is going to be injured in order to make it so, or that someone is going to be disappointed. It is still not your concern. I must drive this home. Too many of us schooled in different walks of life are so concerned about the other. You ask, if I get what I want, will it not imply injury to another? There are ways you know not of, so do not be concerned. Close your eyes now because we are going to be in a long silence. Soon you will become so lost in contemplation, feeling that you are what you want to be 
that you will be totally unconscious of the fact that you are in this room with others. You will receive a shock when you open your eyes and discover we are here. It would be a shock when you open your eyes and discover that you are not actually that which, a moment before, you felt you were, or as you felt possessed. Now we will go into the deep. I need not remind you that you are now that which you have assumed that you are. Do not discuss it with anyone, not even self. You cannot take thought as to the how when you know that you already are. Your three-dimensional reasoning, which is a very limited reasoning indeed, should not be brought into this drama. It does not know. What you have just felt to be true is true. Let no man tell you you should not have it. What you feel that you have, you will have. And I promise you this much. After you have realized your objective, on reflection, you will have to admit that this conscious reasoning mind of yours could never have devised it this way. You are that and have that which this very moment you appropriated. Do not discuss it. Do not look to someone for encouragement because the thing might not come. It has come. Go about your father's business doing everything normal and let these things happen in your world. Positive option, I got this poppin' this damn for vicious back of these conscious. And I'm honest when I spit this while the mic is 
responsive. It's an illuminated sonar conference and lightning process. So I fumigated solar confidence, made progress. But I accumulated, makes me a profit if I communicate it. Exclusivity, face it if I computed basics. A convoluted universe is never tasteless. Endless races came from every place in a matrix. Core to infinity, bracelets, time lapse in its spaceships. Cordial aboard, your currency is accepted for payment, of course. Galactic community, I'm back in a place that was born. Relax the soul's fluidity, I'm passionate, came in a storm. Flash is so beautifully presented, I set the alarm and last is all unity, endless until I'm dead and gone. Way of the Infinite Explorer Sunday, December 14th, 2008 How do you disempower a corrupt system? By empowering yourself. How do you awaken a sleeping population? By awakening yourself. How do you heal a toxic society? By healing yourself. The arcane chronicles of consciousness have been kept from man since the last reboot of civilization a few thousand years ago. One of the many teachings hidden therein is the truth that every conscious entity in the universe is connected to all other conscious entities, wherever and whenever they may be. No thing is separate from anything. Every intimate thought and subtle reflection is, in actuality, beamed throughout the entire ecosystem. In this way, Deepening your awareness is the most noble and dedicated endeavour conceivable. It is futile to take it upon oneself to rouse a sleeping population, to attempt to rally the spiritually undead. Trying to connect unprepared minds to paradigm-cracking information is a vain indulgence. Those who prefer not to reflect upon their existence who feel their needs, motivations and cultural references are fully served by the Matrix, should be left alone. Leave them to their TV, evening news, shopping and sport, drifting in the comfortable oblivion of the consensus trance. One day, they may eventually see through it and take their own first steps on the inner path, maybe in a future lifetime. Philosopher and ethnobotanist Terence McKenna would often say, find the others. By this, he meant be aware of and seek out those fine souls who are also on the inner journey. They are the ones we should give time to. They are the ones equipped to take in new information and prepared to evolve their psyches. Amongst the others, the wider tribe, communication can be free and deep. Share, support, and learn from each other. In 2008, connecting with the others through blogs like this, through podcasts and radio shows like Red Ice, The Sea Realm, The Psychedelic Salon, and many more, through conferences and gatherings, it has never been easier. 
I encourage everyone to make the extra effort to reach out. There is usually a warm welcome on the other side. The universe has a habit of extending its supportive synchronicities out to you in direct correlation with the amount of effort you put in. No single system or teacher has everything you need. Not the guy in the robes, or the guy with the bullhorn. Not the cross-legged bald guy, or the bearded ponytail guy. No one who walks the path of transcendent wisdom will ever ask you to follow them. Many who have been on the path for a long time agree on one thing. It is always somehow an essentially personal journey, customised and unique. There are no shortcuts. Why would you want to curtail your own sacred journey? Everything that is vibrates. Each different configuration of vibration creates a form, and we give names to those forms. They are what Lao Tzu called the Ten Thousand Things. All the stuff of the world. Trees, cars, oranges, iPods. Some things are not things as we ordinarily think of them. Things like awareness, fascination, fear, love, joy, melancholy. But they are things all the same. Forms within the illusion. Vibrations within the matrix. The Illuminist labyrinth of conspiracy, black ops and corporate corruption is a thing. A thing of low vibration. A time loop of unconsciousness. Not somewhere to dwell in the long term. Giving enduring focus to it will eventually leave you resonating at the same super low levels and it will be a major feat to shake them off. The blade becomes blunt. The vitality fades. Live in Mordor too long and you come out looking like Gollum. Go in, do the reconnaissance, and get out. We know the world government is moving from covert to overt control. No more skulking around in the shadows for them. This time, it's broad daylight in-your-face fascism. Global financial markets are being made to hemorrhage in order for national economies to credibly implode. Then, the control system can implement its mandate of radical centralization. Militarization of key command structures will follow, ushered in by quasi-natural disasters, social unrest and false flag terror. It's all there in the control system official broadcasts, mainstream news, every single day. Consider this statement from globalist sorcerer Henry Kissinger in 1991. Today, America would be outraged if UN troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. Tomorrow, they will be grateful. This is especially true if they were told that there were an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, that threatened our very existence. It is then that all peoples of the world will plead to deliver them from this evil. The one thing that every man fears is the unknown. When presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being, granted to them by the world government. For researchers who anchor themselves exclusively to the unveiling process, it is a demanding time right now. Torrents of disclosure and revelation are manifesting in increasing volumes. Some observers have even fallen foul of sharing their personal visions in public arenas. 
either as dire prophetic warnings or glorious cosmic occurrences, ill-advised in the extreme, regardless of intention. It's deceptively simple to burn up all one's conscious juice in charting the gloomy corridors of illuminist corruption, hunting down that ever-elusive Minotaur. But the Minotaur is a phantom. It doesn't exist. The enemy is within. Number six is number one. The main game is the dimensional shift, not the spasms of the control system. You must choose which to pour your energy into. A cautionary tale. Those dominated by their own unobserved egoic mind often wander into the conspiracy wilderness without the necessary equipment. They are predictably pounced upon by the shape-shifting phantoms of paranoia, depression, anxiety, panic, messianic delusion and hostility. Maybe even accosted by actual agents of the control system who spot them a mile off. Nevertheless, at a deep level, they are all conjurations that cannot exist without the consenting mind. In extreme cases, some individuals may develop a clinical condition referred to as a psychogenic fugue, a colossal existential breakdown. The fugue state is characterized in the individual by the willful abandonment of previous identity, memories and personality. In short, the old life of misery is jettisoned and replaced with a new fantasy life. The subject transforms himself from Mr. Nobody into Mr. Somebody. Such serious and complex neuropsychological processes are usually triggered by the resurfacing of an intense earlier life trauma which threatens to induce unbearable distress. The fugue state can thus be considered as an emergency armoring mechanism to protect a deeply damaged psyche from any further suffering. Whether written or spoken, words can only ever suggest meaning. The Eastern proverb of the finger pointing at the moon highlights this beautifully. All instruction is but a finger pointing to the moon, and those whose gaze is fixed upon the pointer will never see beyond. In other words, if you confuse the pointer with the thing that it is actually pointing to, your perception is short-circuited and flawed. You're looking at the wrong thing. Seems obvious? Consider science as an example of flawed perception. Science is a way of looking at the world. The description it offers is not reality itself, it is a representation of reality. A very useful and pragmatic one. Yet the larger part of the scientific community, and certainly the entire mainstream media, are serving up scientific description as reality itself. This is like confusing the sheet music that provides musical notation for a Mozart piano sonata with Mozart's actual music itself. It is not the music. Perhaps only a handful of virtuoso pianists have understood the music as it was originally conceived truly felt it, become one with it, and thus became an authentic conduit to express and realise it. Perceiving this simple but crucial distinction helps to pierce the consensus veil of unreality. Let us clarify some terminology used here. Consciousness. We become more conscious in the sense that we bring higher awareness into our living experience. Awareness of self, 
of others, detachment from the egoic mind, and connection to the universal flow of consciousness that interpenetrates everything. Knowing, not thinking, the ten thousand things lose their pull. So it follows that low consciousness, or even unconsciousness, indicates a lack of awareness and a necessarily mesmerizing identification with the lower instincts of egoic materialism. For low consciousness people, the ten thousand things exert tremendous pull. In some circles, consciousness is what used to be called spirit. It is the sentience of the universe, the Tao, the Holy Spirit, the divine force. The mind conducts consciousness like music. It requires both technical and creative ability, brain and heart. Too much of one or too little of another, and it sounds all weird and discordant. Get the balance just right, and you produce something truly exquisite. The conscious human experience is like this. From time to time, everything gears up for a new score. Seeking to move from the restraints of the current auditorium, which is becoming an impediment to the music, to a substantially larger dimensional arena. A natural progression to allow the music to expand and mature. This is echoed in the idea that our ancient ancestors did not experience consciousness in the same way we do, perhaps not even at all. Julian Jaynes stated in his magnum opus, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, 1976, that the ancients did not possess an introspective conscious mind space. Their conduct and communication was aligned with auditory and visual messaging from a non-local field. James called this mode of thinking the bicameral mind and suggests that a shift to individual consciousness occurred around 3,000 years ago. James reflected that the change was due to the development of symbolic language and the written word. I conjecture that this may also have coincided with significant earth changes and a natural differentiation of consciousness before the next integration stage. The oil and water separate. Divergence. Solutions to all Matrix-New World Order propaganda are inside, not outside. They are in our being, not anywhere else. There is nowhere else. The journey into the heart of one's own being provides the solutions to all the Matrix phantasms you can imagine. If you already know that, read on. If you don't already know that, read on. If you find that hard to believe and don't wish to consider any alternatives, Go and watch TV and forget all about it. Scientists can only ever take the baton so far. Newton and Einstein took it a long way, but they can only run so far for so long. Then someone else has to take things forward. Seems fair enough? Covering a good distance, furthering the knowledge and expanding the territory are the best and most noble achievements one can hope for. Yet expectations of universal theories and ultimate particles are naively and unconsciously pursued. This relentless delusion is much encouraged by the control system, as it keeps the people away from the glorious nature of the ever-unfolding and deepening universe. In mainstream science, the implications of quantum theory have certainly caused the most trouble to classical empiricist thinking, rather than the actual findings themselves. 
A prime example is physicist Alain Aspect's 1982 experiment in a Paris lab where he revealed that subatomic particles are able to instantaneously communicate with each other over vast distances. They communicate instantly, each particle knowing what the other is doing regardless of physical separation. Nicknamed spooky action at a distance, Aspect's findings indicated that basic assumptions about the physical makeup of reality might be wrong. Wrong all over. With spooky action, somehow each particle always seems to know what the other is doing instantly, even if they are separated by a billion miles. The problem with this is that it violates Einstein's long-held tenet that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, as faster than light travel is effectively time travel, a disturbing prospect for the reductionist mind. This daunting vision caused many physicists to desperately devise and elaborate theories to explain away Aspect's findings, to box them off into the unknown, leave well alone category. Happily, and much more constructively, it inspired others to offer up even more innovative explanations. For University of London physicist David Bohm, Aspect's work was further evidence that the world of objects, space and separation does not exist. It is all a hologram, or, as Bohm dubbed it, a hollow movement. To help explain why Bohm can confidently make this startling assertion, let us pin down precisely what a hologram is. A hologram is a three-dimensional photograph where the object to be photographed is bathed in a laser beam. A second laser beam is bounced off the reflected light of the first, and the resulting interference pattern, where the two beams cross, is captured on film. When that film is developed, it looks like a meaningless swirl of weird lines. But when the developed film is illuminated by another laser beam, a three-dimensional image of the original object appears. When I was a kid, I would sometimes see little hologram stickers for sale in novelty joke shops. When you turn them toward the light, the two-dimensional surface would reveal what appeared to be a window into another world, in which a little rocket, or a face, or a guitar would sit in glorious three-dimensional space. This fascinated me. As well as their dimension-defying properties, holograms have another extraordinary characteristic, and this is the property that speaks of the construction of the whole universe. Let's take the example of the little guitar hologram sticker. If I cut the hologram in half, and then illuminate it with a laser, each half will still be found to contain the image of the guitar. Cut each piece in half again, and again, and again, and still the fragment of film will always contain a smaller, but nevertheless complete version of the original image. Each fragment encoded with the design of the whole. This insight inspired Bohm to another way of understanding Aspect's discovery. Bohm believed the reason subatomic particles are able to remain in contact with one another regardless of the distance separating them is not because they are sending some weird light speed signal back and forth, but because their separateness is an illusion. He argues that, at a deeper level of reality, such particles are not individual entities but extensions of the same fundamental entity. Bohm offers the following illustration to clarify this. Imagine an aquarium containing fish. 
You cannot see the aquarium directly. All your knowledge about it comes from two television cameras. One directed at the aquarium's front, and the other directed at its side. As you stare at the two television monitors, you might assume that the fish on each of the screens are two entirely separate entities. After all, the cameras are set at different angles and each fish appears to behave differently. One swims left to right, the other swims toward you and away from you. However, when you watch the fish closely, you eventually become aware that there's a certain relationship between them. When one turns, the other also turns. Different angles, but definitely corresponding. Without awareness of the aquarium and the cameras, you might assume that the fish must be instantaneously communicating with one another. For Bohm, this is exactly what's occurring between subatomic particles in Aspect's experiment. Every particle is connected to every other, part of one whole dynamic 4D membrane. Everything interpenetrates everything else. There is no separation. Ancient mystical traditions repackaged. All is one. Not only does each bit of the hologram contain the code for the whole, it also deepens to include the entire construct of what we call past, present and future. Everything is existent at once. Moving your laser of consciousness over it gives the appearance of the passage of time. In November 2008, Stefan Dürr and a team from the John von Neumann Institute for Computing, Ulich, Germany, concluded that what we call matter is merely the energy from vacuum fluctuations. That is, the apparently substantial stuff that makes up the world is actually no more than fluctuations in the quantum vacuum, the energy interactions from little theoretical particles popping in and out of our dimension. Strange how this wasn't headline news with CNN, ABC, Fox, BBC, Sky, etc. There is no matter, it's all energy fizzing away in the quantum vacuum. Instead, the headlines were about money, murder, celebrities and sport. The usual. Where this exciting physics did get mainstream coverage, the reporting was filled with patronising wry smiles, condescending language and a sentiment that resonated this is beyond your little world, so shut the fuck up and watch Desperate Housewives instead. These fantastic new observations, arrived at running quantum chromodynamic equations through a supercomputer over a year, are another clear illustration that there really is no concrete world out there. What we perceive is a dance of energy. Vibrations intoned by a myriad frequencies and wavelengths. It is similar to the spectral charts produced by mapping the acoustic properties of sound waves, particularly in music. Sacred use of entheogens gives inner explorers the natural vision to see music in this way. Reality is just the same. As Michael Talbot points out in his superb book, The Holographic Universe, many ESP-type phenomena make perfect sense in the holographic model. People with more unhindered and free-roaming lasers of consciousness are simply accessing different non-local pieces of information by focusing on non-ordinary parts of the hologram. Depending on social and cultural parameters, such trans-temporal non-ordinary holographic reading might be called magic, sorcery, or a miracle, or just a coincidence. 
depending on your belief system. People wrap their experiences in the most compelling and immediate cultural constructs available to them. Bohm said, Dividing the universe up into living and non-living things has no meaning. Even a rock is in some way alive. For life and intelligence are present not only in all of matter, but in energy, space, time, the fabric of the entire universe. The universe is seeking to bring deeper and fuller consciousness into itself. All energy configurations, all animal, mineral and vegetable entities contribute. This is the main game. The dimensional shift is another evolutionary augmentation in the divine cycle. This is what the control system really doesn't want you to think about. It undoes a lot of the hard work they've put into containing your thought. They'd much rather see you carrying banners around central London or downtown New York with anti-New World Order slogans and giving out pamphlets, ranting on radio shows. They love that. They look down from their penthouses smiling, smoking cigars, eating small rodents and wondering why the hell the dumb humans still haven't got onto the real game. Do you want to fight the New World Order? Unplug from the Matrix? then let nothing be a barrier to your own spiritual growth and transcendence. Work on yourself and be committed. Display the spirit of the impeccable warrior in every moment. Seek wholeness, not fragmentation. Understand that the only thing that is real is your conscious experience. Do not resist change. Make change become your change. Outdo them at their own game. The spiral of creation is not static. It is a living, evolving, emergent system of extreme creativity. Hence, Gnosis is a moving target. Walking its path is a nomadic life. When night falls, you pitch your tent. In the morning, you pack it up, put it on your back and start walking again. Don't pitch it anywhere permanently. Be the infinite explorer. So the thing about the mystic path, why we need to have a mystic side, and it's kind of even more important, is because that will protect us. So then when we're trying to explore the hypnagogic state and go into deep trances and commune with beings in the so-called spiritual world, which I think is a real place. When you're trying to do that stuff, if you have this backup, this spiritual backup of the Buddha and Jesus and they're looking out for you and you've got all like you literally have names you can call if you get scared of a being I can't even remember the last time the dark scared me and not in a not in like a little kid way but like I'm doing a ritual or I'm meditating late at night and there's it's shadowy that stuff stop being scared of like evil spirits a long time ago and now for some people listening to this that probably sounds like no big deal but for those of us who are in this esoteric life and we're trying to enter into this other realm all the time, there's a definite reason to be cautious. I mean, look, sleep paralysis is no joke. And sleep paralysis is just a haywire version of what we're trying to do. So we're trying to enter into 
a deep, deep trance, keep our mind alert and awake, and then experience an out-of-body or semi-out-of-body state. Sleep paralysis is exactly that, except it's almost like forced upon the person. The person has no control. And what do they see, dude? They see the most horrifying, demonic beings. And what happens when people, people like, they don't sleep for long enough. They start hearing all these dark, demonic voices and things. So we just have to remember that our minds are capable of this. So when we start messing around with the occult, which we should do, I think it's cool. I think the occult is groovy. I think it's a good thing to do. Um, I think it makes you smarter. Don't tell anyone, but I think one of the secrets of the occult is it seems to make you better with language. For one, the literature you have to read is is difficult. And that always is good, but it's also... I'm pretty sure the occult actually is something to do with language. That's the whole thing about this mystical word and the lost Hiram Abiff's lost word and all this, whatever that is. And Jesus as the word. And what's going on here is that it's very much to do with language in the mind. That's one of the occult things because a lot of occult power has to do with self-hypnosis and being able to activate the mind over matter potential of the human being. And so there's something about dealing in occult things that will inevitably make you a better speaker and a better writer and a better uh, conceptual thinker. You guarantee it. So we should do it. I think the occult is too good. It makes you too aware of things in yourself that have infinite value. Like I can't wait to live the rest of my life knowing this stuff because I know it already at this age so I'll be greatly benefited by it and again it's not bragging I'm trying to encourage everyone take this stuff look into it for yourself mystic versus occultist false dichotomy get a mystic side get I recommend again that the Buddha stuff I just talked about that's how I did it you could also do it with yoga you could also do it with Taoism you could also do it with Christianity Uh, you could also do it with I'm sure Judaism and Islam, I don't know as much in the, in those, about those as, as other things, but you could definitely do it in many different ways. And the result would be oh, a singular meditation practice, like a very specific way to meditate that is giving you direct communion. Then you have a strict moral code. And then once you got that, you're good. So you can go do as much weird shamanic stuff as you want. That's my idea. So think of it like this. The mystic is really interested in getting to the goal. The occultist is kind of like John Constantine. He or she just wants to dance in the spirit world. The occultist, we just want to go in the spirit world and hang out, basically. And just meet people. You know, and just sort of hang. Shoutouts to Osprey Music on YouTube for this dope meditation music we play all the time. Osprey Music. Shoutouts. A great creator of binaural beats. If you need some dope binaural beats to meditate to, go to his YouTube channel and subscribe. 
Alright, so now that we've said it, that in order to go into this occult side of things, we really need to have, like, some spiritual armor that we can take with us so we're not going in blind. But once we get there, well, I'll tell you what I think is the mo thing most worth your time. Okay, the, the thing that seems to be true is that the mystic is focused more on meditation. But the occultist is focused more on altered states of consciousness. See, union, the mystical union is, is amazing. It's the greatest feeling there is, but it's not necessarily a visionary or an audition, ad auditionary, an auditory spiritual vision. Clairvoyance, clairaudience communing with the ancestors contact with beings and the big one is out of body states either partial or total if it wasn't for this occult delving there would be no mystic path See, it's the occultist who is doing experiments, who's doing spiritual science, who's messing around, trying things, seeing if it works. It's the occultist who's worked out these little details like that your thoughts are things. Believe your thoughts are things. I recently, it hit me that all of the mystery schools that I've studied, all, the, all their stuff, they all teach that essential reality, that your thought is a type of reality. That is as real as the world is around you. Thoughts are things. See, the people who work that out are the occultists. The people who figure out, alright, thoughts are things. So hold that positive thought in your mind. Hold it in there like a spiritual armor. Thoughts are things you don't want to allow the things to be weapons that are turned against you and the world around you. What you want to do is have thoughts, you want to have armor and also flowers for everyone. Here's a rose, everybody. Here's a rose. You can even do that as a meditation when you see somebody and they do something that's like annoying to you. You can go, here's a rose. And do everything in your power to express love and compassion and gratitude towards that person with no, no, like, thinking you're better or something like that. But just a straight up switching out, a substitution of that judgment, of that annoying feeling towards another person. Switching that out for a deliberate act of love. That's the thought power. That's the power that the Buddha had, that the gods would come and ask the Buddha. So yeah, it's cool to talk to spirits because it's probably one of the coolest things you can do as a human being. But it's so weird. That's why it is a false dichotomy because it's like you wouldn't have the mystic path without the occult people who are tinkering around with different meditations at generation after generation creating these intensely specific things. I mean, like spiritual alchemy, 
the Qi Kung, um, yoga, like all of these super hyper specific breakdowns of the spiritual being. And that doesn't even include all the modern mystery schools, which have contributed even more to this occult science of consciousness. So without all that tinkering, the mystics could have never figured out what was the best way to meditate straight to God. But if it wasn't for the mystical path, the occult path would be nothing but a bunch of lunatics. People worshipping the moon. It'd be all people worshipping the moon. Now, I do worship the moon, but also the sun and all the other planets because God is wholeness. And so, basically, you have the occult path, which includes, of course, psychedelics as well. All that whole thing. Which, that's an example of how the occult path... So, say, a shaman... And this has happened. This is actually what happened to Rupert Sheldrake. Do you guys remember the, the episode of Rupert Sheldrake on Joe Rogan? It was actually... There's an amazing part in the middle. I've got to play it on the show where he tells how he came to learn how to meditate. And he basically said he took psychedelics, saw what was out there, visited the spiritual world. And then he said to himself, well, I've got to learn a way to do this without the drugs. Of course, there's got to be a way. And so he started taking yoga in order to learn how to do this. So that's an exact example. And of course, Rupert Sheldrake is a great example of a mystic and an occultist and a great scientist and philosopher and historian of science. And so, Rupert Sheldrake is someone who is a mystic, ultimately, because he's into the ability to directly commune with the Creator. But he's also someone who does psychedelics because he wants to experience the intermediary world of spirits and geometry and sacred mathematics. So that's how the two things actually work in a, in a great modern mystic like Sheldrake. If you need an audiobook to listen to, listen to Science Set Free. If you are someone who would like to see materialism decline in its effectiveness as a cultural tool of indoctrination and suffering creation. If you'd like to see materialism reduced, then the, the arguments you need are contained in that book, Science Set Free by Rupert Sheldrake. And it's not a complete case-closed thing, but what he gives us in that book is there are the tools to challenge materialism on every level, using scientific argument and evidence without being creationist or anything like that, but really from a spiritual perspective. It's like he's kind of trying to do for science what like a Carl Jung would do for psychology, of just like reintroducing it to the spirit or doing, trying to do that, or trying to give the future the tools to do that. Science set free. So yeah, a lot of people have learned 
ex- have become experts in meditation because they had a shamanic experience that showed them the possibility and then it became very obvious hey I gotta find a way to get back there I gotta find a way to go back <laughs> I remember the first time I realized that you could basically have visions by entering into a type of deep meditation where you were almost went to sleep but your mind stayed awake. I remember the first time I realized that was possible. It was I was in a cave and a an ogre like a being from the earth it wasn't it wasn't a scary being it actually looked kind of like an elder scrolls scene but the ogre saint came to me and he had a scroll and he said are you ready to enter the sacred feast are you ready for the sacred feast that was it are you ready for the sacred feast and it's so weird because that was my first one it was years ago Many years ago. Not many. I'm not old. Like, many old. I don't... I don't know how to express it right in between, I guess. But it was a while ago. It was a whole different me back when this happened. Now I'm thinking about it. And I think the ogre was like... The mother. The... the. Because I always... I don't know why I always thought it was male... But now I'm realizing it could have just as easily been a, a a feminine figure coming out of a cave in the earth and inviting me to the sacred bounty of imagery and initiation. Because, you know, that's the cave. The cave in ancient times is where you go to have a vision quest. The cave is the vision quest. Not Plato's cave. This is a good cave. This is the cave that the yogi goes to, the monk goes to. It's the cave of the mystic. The cave of the magi. Are you ready for the sacred feast? And then I woke up. It was really... At first, I could only do it for a very short amount of time. I believe that's all Edgar Casey was doing. He was just very good at it. And Rudolf Steiner and Emanuel Swedenborg. That's what they were all doing. That's what yogis do. It's what it's what everyone does. And it's really hard. It's not easy. Try it. It sounds easy. Try it. Because as soon as you fall asleep, it's over. And you'll know. Like, you'll know it's not falling asleep because you won't be asleep. And as soon as you fall asleep, you won't remember anything. And it'll go away. And you'll be asleep. The sacred feast of imagery, of archetypal wisdom. Anyway, so that so the occult is all that stuff, man. The occult is also trying to become psychic, trying to do telepathic things. And I mean mediumship, being a medium, communing with the spirits of the ones we've lost. So ideally, we'll be both. Ideally, we'll be like Rupert Sheldrake, and we will 
have a Buddha. And we'll be like Jesus. We'll be both. Oh, so let's touch on that a little before we close this topic down. So what Jesus was known for was exorcism and healing. And we've talked about this before, but it's always worth bringing up again. And I'd love to know what everybody thinks about this. What if there's a way through speech to elicit the placebo effect in other people? Remember, the placebo effect is not like something that isn't real. It's mind over matter. It's the mind's ability to heal the body with with will. It's self-healing. It's a psychic power. So what if Jesus was given by a spirit or by God itself the a method and of course he probably would combine it with his own ingenuity and genius and trial and error but what if Jesus developed a method perhaps he learned it from the Essenes or from John the Baptist but it was a method of speaking into reality someone else's ability to heal themselves When he says, go, your faith has healed your son, or go, your faith has healed you. And if he could do something like that, then he would have been indeed the greatest occultist. A a truly, truly great initiate. And what were the demons? Who knows? Morton Smith, in his book, Jesus the Magician calls them uh, hysterical disorders that in a more primitive time of psychology that's actually how it was understood as just a sort of temporary insanity brought on by stress and if Jesus was able to figure out a way to elicit people's ability to heal their own bodies with their own minds then perhaps he was also able to figure out a way to bring about instant psychological reform both these things are possible. There's, there's, there's a way this could have, could totally be something that happened. And whoever would be able to figure that out would be the Son of God. Who, who could do such things but the Son of God? I'm not saying he was the only one ever, but that would be the Son of God. In some kind of way, half metaphorical, but, but also literal way. It's funny because there's all this scholarship out there, all this mainstream new school Christian Jesus seminar type scholarship where I get all these ideas from because it's very good and it's very new uh, and it's very accurate. And if you master the information to the degree that they have, you, you're more likely to agree with them than you are to, you know, want to debate them. But the thing is, they don't have any explanation for that. The only explanation, I mean, th- that's one thing they've proven is they've gone, okay, so you know, he didn't walk on water, he didn't turn one thing into another thing, but he, he was known as an exorcist and a healer. So those stories are based in reality, the ones you read in the Bible. So how did he do that? These cats, these scholars, they don't have an answer for that. 
that's that's the part of this DYR stuff that's original, where we're trying to come up with the way that he could have really done this stuff. Because it would explain a lot, wouldn't it? He would. You, if that person was able to do those things, and then he said to you, "I'm speaking, I'm telling you what God thinks," wouldn't you believe him? So that perfect storm of being, I don't think happens because of manipulation or lying or accident or mental disease. I think it can only happen because it's God's will. So let's all say a prayer to the esoteric Jesus tonight. That our consciousness can travel back through time and resonate with his being in the present moment of his perfect self-mastery. And that we can gain mystic and occult knowledge from this. No joke, just sometimes in your meditation try entering into that thought alone with no other thoughts. That you're going to send your consciousness back in time to the moment when Jesus lived and was at the height of his self-mastery and you're going to resonate and learn from what you find there if you can quiet your mind and relax your body and do this for uh, you know 15-20 minutes to get real deep and then do this exercise I think you'll be astounded at what you get you won't get nothing you'll get something Meditate deeply. Breathe in. And as you breathe out, always relax the muscles. As you breathe in, become aware of the muscles. Every time you breathe in, become aware of your body or become aware in your thoughts of each muscle group. The thought energy, the focus of thought is no longer in the head. It's no longer not somewhere here and now. It's here and now and it's in the muscles in your body. The thought power is in the muscles in your body when you breathe in. You breathe in, the thought power is in your muscles. You breathe out, it relaxes those muscles. One breath to peace. It's my ninja meditation. Don't worry, I'm going to say it a lot. It's one of the things I decided to talk about ways to meditate on every episode. Just in case there's somebody out there listening who doesn't know how to meditate, here's the thing you can do right now. Get your thoughts out of your head and your skull. Start putting them in the muscle groups in your body. Learn to become aware of the entire muscle system in your whole body at once by breathing in. I am aware of all my muscles. I relax all my muscles. Transformer, connect with me, sustainable, sound plays the stillness of 
energy, and that's everything. Zero point freedom, expansion from the center like spiritual releasing. Vector equilibrium, measureless continuum, synchronize all things, effortlessly lifting them. Emptiness. It's got an old soul. I sip the licks of life, and it was so cold. Eternally, I'm never alone in the cosmos. Although my body's enlarged, it's never far, though. The secret isn't really for sale. It's in my barcode. Stars are in alignment. I froze and transmigrated. It shows the probability mode arose from iron ages. Because my intention was clear. It's like I broke the matrix. And if my energy glows, they like holy spaceships. And that's hermetically basic forces. So genetically, internally ancient, it's gorgeous. A beautifully insatiable audience. It's the guardians that's watching us. They said it was marvelous, far from above. They correlated everyone's consciousness, work on the grid. They open and close portals, it's obvious. When they transfer information, it's particles in formation. Godliness like Trismegistus in his meditations. And it's the Federation posting that galactic call. Light bodies, weightless work, lighting and condensation. It's in your center core, story. Becoming our chemical masters to know that you're not silent, that you're more so a semi silent. Things can just go through you. Look. Invisible self, collecting the elements, telemagnetic myself. Colloidal community, chemical unity, truly we under a spell. Awaken the mind, lessen the density, breaking through time. Medicinal ritual, healing through rhythm, deliver the vision, is raising the vibe. Try not to kill it, but feel it. Revealing the life within it. Jesus Christ, can you see the freaking light within us? Solar plexus, my persona flip. Not a bottom on a top, like a polar shift. Molecular transmutation, the inner created a prana, possess a benevolent manifestation. Solids in the gases, gases in the Liquids and this specific crystal used for megalithic lifting. Coral castle to aurora borealis in my laboratory isn't any ordinary palace. Magic up in my mixture, mastery of the scriptures, alchemy, wizard, and power, the gifted anatomy of the condition. My Pythagoras mind can supply the fabric of realities I designed. I'm the catalyst of mine. I went out of body when I was out of body this time. Inception until I redirected my soul. It's inside correction. All I need is a Affection to stay alive, breatharian on the other side. The quest is like a chariot. Right, saw various intertwined areas of the mind. It's like a tarot kit, and you can find me where the pharaoh sits, writing scribes. Barely a gift, my heritage is God inside. Barely a glitch, 'cause everything is fortified and carefully stitched. It's like the aura never lies, and it's borderline snitch. The new horizon arising is my gift. If I conceptualize it, then it exists. A special assignment I signed it in the fifth. Switch densities, electric confinement up in the mix. Swift entities, the metrics of science are caught a glimpse. Lift anything when sitting in silence is my gift. I'm lead scouting when I spit shift molecules. Shift molecules. Uh, a monumental attraction. I hit a lot of jewels. You gotta excavate what I said to find a lot of clues. It's mathematical magic. This is a reading of the book written by Rudolf Steiner, A Way of Self-Knowledge, and the other book, The Threshold of the Spiritual World, both in one volume. Part 1, 
a way of a way of self knowledge. Introductory remarks. The goal of this book is to provide spiritual scientific insights into the true nature of the human being. I have presented it so that the reader may grow into what is offered. I hope that reading it can become a kind of inner conversation. If this conversation unfolds in you in such a way that it reveals hidden inner forces which can be awakened in every soul, then reading this book may lead to genuine inner soul work. As a result, you may find yourself gradually impelled to undertake that journey of the soul which truly leads to vision of the spiritual world. To this end, I have presented eight meditations that people can actually practice. If they do so, these meditations can convey their meaning to the soul through its own inner deepening. I have tried to provide something of interest even to those readers who are already thoroughly familiar with writing and research in the area of the suprasensory. Practitioners of the suprasensory life may find something of value both in the mode of presentation and in the direct connection the material has with the soul's inner experiences. At the same time, I hope those less familiar with the material will also find this kind of meditative presentation useful. This volume supplements and amplifies my various writings on spiritual science, but it also stands on its own and may be read independently. In title Theosophy and title An Outline of Esoteric Science, I tried to present things as they appear when inner observation ascends to the spiritual. The presentation was descriptive and arose from the lawfulness dictated by the things themselves. <clears throat> In the present book, the procedure is different. Here I tell what a soul can experience when it sets out on the path toward the spirit in a particular way. You may therefore regard the present volume as a quote-unquote report of soul experiences. You should note, however, that if you follow the path I describe, the experiences that you may, ha you may have must take on an individual form corresponding to the individual nature of your own soul. I have tried to take this fact into account. Nevertheless, you should understand that what I am presenting are the precise experiences of only one particular soul. Parenthesis, it is for this reason that I have called this, these meditations a way of self-knowledge. Parenthesis. This book, then, may help other souls enter into what is described and thereby, perhaps, help those souls achieve their own individual goals. In this sense, a way of self-knowledge supplements and amplifies my earlier work titled How to Know Higher Worlds. Here I have presented only isolated examples of basic spiritual scientific experiences. For the present, however, there will be no further communications of this meditative kind on other areas of spiritual science. Written by Rudolf Steiner in Munich, August 1912. Meditation 1. The Physical Body When the soul is surrendered to the appearances of the outer world through the senses and what they present, it cannot, on true self-reflection, say that it perceives those appearances or experiences things in the outer world. Nor does the soul, while it is given over to the outer world, truly know anything of itself. 
It is the sunlight, for example, radiating from things through space in many colors, that actually experiences itself in the soul. The soul rejoices in some event. In that moment of joy, the soul is joy, insofar as it is aware of it. Joy experiences itself in the soul. The soul is one with its experience of the world. It does not experience itself as something that rejoices, wonders, delights, and feels fear. It is joy, awe, delight, and fear. If the soul admitted this, then those moments when it withdraws from experiencing the outer world and observes itself would reveal themselves in their proper light. Such times would then emerge as a very special kind of life, one at first not comparable to its normal life. With this special kind of life, the riddles of the soul's existence first begin to emerge into consciousness, riddles that are the source of all other questions about the universe. When the soul, for shorter or longer periods, ceases being one with the outer world and withdraws into the solitude of its own existence, then two worlds, inner and outer, present themselves to the human spirit. The soul's withdrawal is not a simple process that once completed can be repeated over and over again in more or less the same way. <clears throat> it is more like the beginning of a journey into previously unknown worlds. Once you begin, each step leads to and prepares you for further steps. Each step enables you to take the next, and with each step you experience more of the answer to the question, what does it mean to be a human being in the true sense of the word? Worlds that are hidden to the ordinary view of life open to you. And yet that which can reveal the truth of our everyday view of life is to be found only in these hidden words, worlds. <clears throat> Even though there is no all-encompassing, final answer to our questions, the answers we find through the soul's inner journey go far beyond what our senses and the reason that is bound to them can give us. This something other is what we need as human beings. When we reflect upon ourselves honestly and truthfully, we will notice that this is so. Beginning the soul's journey requires sober thinking. Such thinking provides a sure point of departure for entering deeper into those suprasensory realms that are the soul's ultimate concern. Many souls wish to spare themselves this starting point of thinking. They wish to enter directly into the suprasensory. But a healthy soul, though it may initially seek to avoid it, will always turn toward such thinking. You may indeed have suprasensory experience without this footing, but only through reflections such as those that follow will you gain a sure foundation. For instance, moments can arise when you might say to yourself, quote, You must be able to withdraw from all that the outer world can give you, otherwise you would be forced to confess to something that you cannot live with, namely that you experience yourself as a contradiction. Consider this. What you perceive outside exists without you. In the past it existed without you, and it will continue to exist without you. Why do colors feel themselves within you when your perception of them is so unimportant to them? 
Why do the matter and forces of the outer world form your body? It comes alive in order to give you an outer appearance. The outer world forms itself as you. You become aware that you need your body because without your senses, which only your body can create, you could not initially experience anything. Without your body, you would be as you were in the beginning, empty. The body gives you inner fullness, content. End quote. And then all the reflections can arise that are essential for human existence if it is not at times to fall into unbearable contradiction, which can happen to all of us. Quote, this body is alive so that it can be an expression of my soul's experience. Its processes are such that my soul can live and experience itself within them. But that will not be so in the future. The things alive in my body now will be subject to quite different laws in the future. Then my soul will experience them differently from the way in which I experience them now. Then my body will be subject to the laws governing the matter and the forces in outer nature, laws that have nothing more to do with my life or me. This body to which I now owe my soul's experiences will then be taken into the general course of the world, where its behavior will no longer have anything in common with my inner experience. End quote. Reflecting in this way, we can experience inwardly all the horror of death without intermingling purely personal feelings normally connected with such thoughts in the soul. Such personal feelings inhibit the calm, detached mood necessary for meditative knowing. We can readily understand that people wish to know about death and about the soul's life which is independent of the body's dissolution. But people approach especially these questions in a way that obscures the real view of things. They accept answers that are prompted simply by their wishes. You cannot gain true insight into anything in the spiritual world unless you are quite unbiased and are equally willing to accept no as yes. If you consider yourself conscientiously, you will see clearly that you could not accept knowing that the life of your soul is extinguished at the death of your body with the same equanimity as you would accept learning that your soul will continue to exist after death. Certainly there are those who believe quite honestly that the dissolution of the physical body annihilates the soul and they lead their lives accordingly. It is not necessarily true, however, that these people are completely unbiased in their feelings about such thoughts. Yet, they do not allow their fear of the soul's annihilation and their desire for its continuation to overshadow their reasoning. To that extent, their ideas are often more objective than those whose unconscious belief in the soul's continuing life is based upon a veiled burning desire for that continuation. Still, the level of prejudice among the deniers of immortality is not less than it is among believers. It is only different. Among such deniers are some who create for themselves a definite idea about the nature of life and existence. From this, they then derive certain conditions that they believe to be necessary for life. On the basis of their assumptions, it seems to them that the conditions necessary for the life of the soul 
can no longer be present when the body ceases to exist. They do not notice that it was they who first created the idea of life upon which their thinking rests. They do not notice that they cannot believe that life continues after death only because their idea makes it impossible to think of an existence free of the body. They are prejudiced not by their desires, but by ideas from which they cannot free themselves. Many prejudices exist in this area, only a few examples of which follow. Consider the thought that the body by means of whose processes the life of the soul runs its course, will one day decay into the outer world, where it will follow laws that bear no relationship to inner experience. This thought will allow the event of death to arise in your soul in a way that is without desire or personal interest. Experiencing this can lead to a pure, impersonal question, a question that demands an answer about the meaning of death. This will be followed by a feeling that death in itself is not so important. It is important only because it can shed light upon life. You will recognize that the riddle of life is to be understood through knowing the nature of death. That the soul longs for its own continuation in any case should lead us to be suspicious of all opinions we create concerning that continuation. Why should the facts of the outer world show any concern for what the soul feels? If you believe that like a flame your soul life will flare up and die away when the fuel of your body is consumed, you could well feel yourself to be quite senseless. From that point of view a soul could certainly see itself as meaningless. When the soul turns toward the body, it should reckon with only what the body can reveal. Observing the body, it appears that laws are at work in nature that involve matter and forces in a fluctuating process of change, and that such laws also govern the body, and that after a certain time the body likewise is drawn into the universal process of change. You may use that thought in any way you wish. It is quite useful in natural science. However, it proves quite impossible when applied to the rest of reality. You may, for instance, decide that this view alone is scientifically clear and objective and that everything else is only subjective belief. You can certainly imagine that to be the case. But if you are really unbiased, you will, be, you will not be able to maintain it. And there is the crux of it. It is not important what the soul by its nature perceives to be necessary. What is important is what the outer world from which the body is separated out reveals. After death the outer world absorbs the matter and forces of the human body, which are then subject to laws that are quite different to what happened to the human being during life. Such physical and chemical laws do not relate to the physical body any differently than they relate to any other lifeless thing in the outer world. Therefore one cannot but conclude that this indifferent relationship of the outer world to the human body arises not only after death, but actually exists throughout human life. You cannot get any idea from physical life of the part played by the sensory world in the human body. You can understand it only if you realize something along these lines. Quote, 
The world that I perceive now treats everything within me, everything that bears my senses and mediates the processes through which my soul lives as I believe it will when I die. Thinking in this way takes into account that the time will come when you will no longer be as you now experience yourself. When truly faced with reality, no other picture of the relationship between the sensory outer world and the human body is tenable. The idea that the real participation of the outer world in the human body occurs only after death does not conflict with what we genuinely experience in the inner and outer worlds. The soul experiences nothing unbearable in the thought that the body's substances and forces decay according to the processes of the outer world that have nothing to do with the soul's own life. Even when completely and impartially dedicated to life, the soul cannot discover in its depths any desire arising from the body that would cause it to feel uncomfortable with the thought of the body's dissolution after death. The situation becomes unbearable only if we think that the substances and forces that return to the outer world take the enlivening soul with them. Such an idea would be as unbearable as any other that does not follow naturally from a commitment to what the outer world reveals. The idea that during our life, excuse me, yes, the idea that during our life the outer world has a quite different relationship to human physical existence than it does after death has been created out of nothing. Reality will always reject it as senseless. On the other hand, the idea that the outer world bears the same relationship to the body during life as it does after death is always healthy. If I think the latter, my soul feels in harmony with what the facts reveal. It can sense that it is not in disharmony with facts that speak for themselves and to which we need add no artificial thoughts. People do not always pay attention to how beautifully the soul's natural, healthy feeling harmonizes with what nature reveals. This fact often appears so obvious as to be self-evident. Yet this very appearance of insignificance sheds light upon our question. There is nothing unbearable in the thought that the physical body will eventually dissolve into the elements. But the thought that the same could occur with the soul makes little sense. Many personal human reasons could cause the thought that the soul will dissolve like the body to appear meaningless, but objective consideration must leave them behind. An impersonal and objective dedication to what the outer world teaches shows that the soul must have the same relationship with the outer world during life as it does after death. The decisive point is that this fact arises as a necessity and can resist all possible objections. Whoever thinks this thought consciously will feel with immediate certainty that it accurately reflects reality. This is, in fact, how both believers in and deniers of immortality actually think. Of course, the latter will also claim that the conditions for the processes of life may be found in the laws affecting the body after death, but they are in error if they believe that they can really imagine that these laws exist in a different relationship to the body as the vehicle of the soul during life than they do after death. 
The only possible view is that the particular combination of forces that appears with the physical body stands in the same relationship of independence to the body as vehicle of the soul as that combination of forces which causes processes in the dead body. <clears throat> this independence is not present for the soul, but it is very much present for the substances and forces of the physical body. The soul experiences itself through the body. The body lives with, in, and through the outer world, but the body does not give the soul any greater authority over it than it gives to the processes of the outer world. You must, for example, come to see that for the circulation of the blood within the body, warmth and coldness in the outer world are just as authoritative as feelings of fear or the sense of shame playing in the soul. Thus, in this meditation, first you feel the laws of the outer world active within you in the particular combination of substances and forces that, present, that presents itself as the form of the human body. You perceive the body as part of the outer world, but you remain a stranger to its internal connectivity. Conventional science presently provides some clarity as to how the laws of the outer world come together in the particular entity that is the human physical body. We, of course, hope that this understanding will increase in the future. But such progress in understanding cannot change how the soul must think of its relationship to the body. On the contrary, it will show more and more clearly that the laws of the physical world exist in the same relationship to the soul both before and after death. To expect that progress in our understanding of nature will lead to our learning more about how physical laws apply to bodily processes as a mediator of soul life is illusion. Although we will learn to understand more clearly what occurs in the body during life, the soul will always feel the processes in question to be outside it in the same way it feels the corresponding processes in the body after death to be foreign to it. For the soul, the body and the outer world must appear to be a collection of forces and substances existing autonomously and explainable as part of that outer world. Nature lets a plant arise, then dissolves it again. Nature holds sway, too, over the human body. It allows the human body to arise and pass away within its being. Consider nature in this light and you can forget yourself and everything within you and feel your body is part of the outer world. If you think in this way about your relationship to yourself and to nature, you will experience for yourself what can be called the physical body. End of Meditation 1
The rich man, the poor man, the beggar man, the thief are not different minds, but simply different arrangements of the same mind. There is only God in this world. So when you say, I am, and I say, I am, it's the same God, but we have arranged the structure of mind differently. We have different concepts of self, and that's all. But not one is better because he is richer than the one who is poor. These are only different arrangements of the structure of the mind. Now scripture tells us, and I'm quoting now the book of James, the epistle of James. James is really a letter of Jacob. The words James and Jacob are identical in Hebrew, Greek, and in the Arabic tongue. The same word. So when they begin, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, you can see at once, it's simply a Christian revision of this Jewish letter. It's the letter of Jacob. And if you read it carefully, only twice do they insert, say, Jesus Christ our Lord. All the others, there are 11 other times, it is simply God. The Lord is God, not Christ. So here it is really the servant of the Lord speaking and he's giving us some fantastic instruction and very practical instruction now listen to it carefully I'm now going to quote from the very first chapter of the book of James be doers of the word and not hearers only for he who is a hearer and not a doer is like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror then goes his way and at once forgets what he is like. But he who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres he will be blessed in his doing. Now how do I look into the law, the perfect law, which sets me free, the law of liberty? I look into my mind. I'm now imprisoned. I've heard the sentence. I know exactly how long I'm supposed to serve. Now I look into the law of liberty in my mind. And I assume that I am free, I'm set free. How? I am not concerned. Who brought it about, I am not concerned. I simply look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and I dare to assume that I am free. If I dare to assume that I am free, I rearrange the structure of my mind. The same mind that heard the sentence that I accepted when I heard it. 
Now I do not accept it. I look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. And if, as I'm told in scripture, I persevere, then I will actually receive that which I am doing. I must not forget what I have done and sleep this night as though I am in prison. For if I am now set free, where would I sleep? Let me know exactly where would I sleep. Well, dare to assume that I am sleeping there now. If I sleep in the assumption that I am free, I am not in jail. Even though the bars are there, I don't see them. Close my eyes against them. As Blake tells us, man's perceptions are not bounded by organs of perception. He perceives more than sense so ever acute can discover. And so reason or the ratio of all that we already know is not the same that it shall be when we know more. If I take this tonight and test it, and it proves itself in the testing, but then I have added to my knowledge. And so I know more than before I tested it. And so when I find myself up against something that seems beyond solution, I have found something that can solve it. All I have to do is to rearrange the structure of my mind. So I dare to assume that I am the man that I would be. And sleep as though I am. That's the rearrangement of that structure of the mind. I'm the same being, I'm Neville. I know exactly those that I knew before, but now I know them differently. I know them now as a freed man. But I must not be a hearer of what I heard in scripture. I must be a doer. I must do it. So be not a doer only. Be a doer in the full sense of the word. So that I actually, I'll do it and persist. The word is persevere in scripture. The first chapter, the 22nd through the 25th verses of the epistle of James. So I will simply do it. And though tomorrow I am confronted with the obvious facts of life that I'm still in prison, it still doesn't matter. I did it. I am doing it. And I will continue to do it until that which I have done is perfectly externalized within my world. I am telling you this from experience. I know it. If you go to jail, and you say five to ten years, all right, you know five years, and maybe you get off in six for good behavior. But when you are drafted into the army, there is no date that you are promised where they let you out. You are in for the duration. <coughs> well, I was drafted into the army with $17 million. Well, I didn't ask the permission of anyone. I only consult, consulted myself. I looked around. I knew what the world knew. 
It was something that had to be done. But I must be honest with myself. I didn't want any part of it. But no part of it. Others would tell me, is that the act of a coward? I didn't care what they say. Is that being a good citizen? I didn't care what they said. As I just said earlier, what we now know, which is called reason, it's a reasonable thing to do. We are at war, and we're all Americans, and we should go in there because our country has declared war. Go in there and fight. And so reason tells us that should be done. I was drafted. I did not oppose it. They drafted me took me down to Camp Oak, Louisiana for my base training. And while I was there, I didn't want any part of it. And I dared to assume that I am out of it. I made my normal natural application, as you have to do in the world of Caesar. Within 24 hours, it came back, and it was simply rejected. It was signed, disapproved and signed by my colonel, a very nice gentleman. His name was Colonel Theodore Bilbo Jr. His father was Senator of Mississippi. I said nothing. My captain said, for your sake, Goddard, I am very, very sorry. I know exactly how you feel. You want to be with your wife and your little girl. Your son is in Guadalcanal with the Marines. And you are now almost 38. And so, I know, but I would like to go through this war with a man just like you at my side. So I can't say that I am sorry for myself. I'm sorry only for you. I didn't say one word to him, to the colonel. I didn't oppose it. That was the decision of Caesar. Now, I looked into the perfect law. The law of liberty. And I persevered in that law. And I slept that night as though I slept in my own home in New York City on Washington Square, where I lived on the seventh floor. I lived on that floor, and it was a very large apartment, two bedrooms, a lovely big living room, a dining room, a huge kitchen, and the foyer. And I slept in that place just as though I were there, not in the army. I fell asleep in that state, having done all the normal things that would make me feel this arrangement is perfect. I rearranged the structure of my mind. Instead of seeing 25 men around me sleeping upstairs and knowing that 25 are down below in the next area, I slept in my own bed with my wife in her bed and my little girl in her crib in the corner. I felt everything in that place just as though it's taking place. And I rearranged the structure of my mind and fell sound asleep in that safe. At four o'clock in the morning, here comes a sheet of paper before my eyes and a hand from here down with a pen in its hand. And the pen scratched out the word disapproved. And it wrote in, in a bold script, approved. And then I heard the word, that which I have done, I have done, do nothing.
And then I awoke. It was too early to disturb the 25 other fellows sleeping there. But I waited until the very first moment that I could leave that room. Went down to the latrine and shaved and bathed early and came up filled with the glow that the whole thing was done. All right, I walked in that assumption for the next nine days. Nine days later, the same colonel that disapproved my request called me in. He said, close the door, Goddard. So I closed the door. He said, take a seat. Well, he never asked me to take a seat in his presence before. I was a private who always stood in his presence. He said, take a seat. And then he gave me all the reasons in the world why I should still be in the army. He said, you still want to get out? I said, yes, sir. Give me another reason. You still want to get out? I said, yes, sir. Another one. When he exhausted all the reasons why I should be in the army, and I'm still saying, yes, sir. He said, all right. Bring me another application. Have your captain sign it. Which I did. That day, I was honorably discharged and out of the army. I didn't run away. I was honorably discharged. When vision breaks forth into speech, the presence of deity is there. And who can oppose God? So that which I have done, I have done. Do nothing. So he thought he initiated the urge to let me go free. I looked into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and I persevered in that law. And he played his part, for I rearranged the structure of my mind. I was convinced I wanted out. And I didn't ask anyone's permission. I did not discuss it with one as to why I should want out when 17 million men are being drafted, plus numberless girls, to make a tremendous effort against this monstrous thing that was in Europe. I still wanted out. I did not take anyone into my confidence as to why I wanted out. I had my 13 weeks basic training, and then when I came out, they gave me my citizenship papers and became, I could have been, back in 1922, I could have been an American, but I just didn't have the time or the urge to get around to it, to become a citizen. So I drifted on and drifted on and drifted on, and finally, after this little episode, that's why I went into the army. For I would still be drifting through and being a citizen of Britain. But now I am an American by adoption. And they gave it to me because I did fulfill a 13-week training course in the American Army. So I tell you, I know from experience how true this statement in James is. Read it carefully. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For he who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like one who looks into who, who looks into the mirror and sees his natural face, and then he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But he who is a doer, he looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. 
And when he does that, he is blessed in his doing. That is acting, making the thing become alive within you. Now he tells us in the same chapter, faith without works is dead. As the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so faith without works is dead. He is not proposing that I substitute works for faith. Works are the evidence whether the faith I profess is alive or dead. I say I believe the story of scripture. Well then, if you believe it, then do it. Said whatever you desire, believe you have received and you shall. Well, if I really believe that, I can't say I believe by quoting the Apostles' Creed. That's not belief. Going to church and genuflecting before some man-made little cross, that's not scripture. Do you really believe the doctrines, the teachings of scripture? Not the traditions of men, not the rituals, not the outer ceremonies, but the teachings of scripture. When you pray, believe that you have received and you will. And all things are possible to him who believes. But do I believe that? Well, then believe it. If I really believe I am out of the army, what and where would I be? Well, I would be at home in my place a thousand miles away on Washington Square. If I looked through the window, I would see the Holly Apartments. If I looked to the left, I would see Washington Square. If I looked to the right, I would see Sixth Avenue. It's now called the Avenue of the Americas. But then, and still is to me, raised as I was there, it's still Sixth Avenue to me. And there I would look at Sixth Avenue. Well, I did that that night. I saw Sixth Avenue. I saw Washington Square. And then I went through the entire apartment and touched these objects with my imaginary hands. Now, was that rational? The world will say that was the most irrational thing that one can do. Now, what is reason? The office of reason is simply to extract, well, conclusions from premises. Must my premises always be based upon the evidence of my senses? Must they always dictate what is rational to me? Well, having done this and proven it to be a fact reason doesn't mean to me what it means to the world. For there was sleep in the army, and I wrote a friend of mine who was a Freudian, and he practiced psychiatry in New York City. He was drafted, he was an Englishman too, and he was drafted and he was off in Florida, a man my age. And so when I got out, knowing exactly what I did, I wrote him a detailed letter telling him what I did. And how to do it. No, he was a Freudian. And that was something that didn't make sense to him. To him the whole thing was centered in sex. Not in this use of the imagination. So all right. He didn't answer my letter. I got out in 1943. In the spring. In the month of April. Or was it March? March or April of 1943. 
They drafted me November the 19th, 1942, and I got out in March, 1943. When the war was over and all the other fellows were being discharged, he was discharged. And he said to me afterwards, you know, Neville, I love to come to your lectures and to hear you because it's interesting, it's fairy. You turn my daily bread into the substance of fairy. But while I listen to you, you know what I do? I put my feet right down into the carpet and I hold on to the sides of the chair to keep my sense of the reality and the profundity of things. For he kept on holding his little cot in the army for another three years because he couldn't let go and put himself where he wanted to be. So I am telling you how it's done. I am telling you how it's done from my own experience. That my perceptions are not necessarily bounded by organs of perception. I perceive more than saints, no matter how acute they are, could discover. My senses couldn't discover what I am seeing. Only in my imagination could it be done. I'm seeing the Holly Apartments. I am seeing Sixth Avenue. I am seeing Union Square. I am seeing the beds, my wife, my child. I hadn't seen them in three months. What draw them? I didn't bring sex into it. No, I didn't go to bed with her. There she was, the girl I loved. She wasn't her own bed. And I in my own bed. We have twin beds. And my little girl was then just over a year. She was born, not quite a year. She was born in June of 1942. And this was not yet June of 1943. So she was not yet a year old. Here's my sweet little child, Vicky, in her bed. And I walked through the entire thing and touched all the objects and felt them so normal and so natural. Came back to my bed and slept in it. If anyone were sensitive in that room, they would have seen me sleeping there. I was so natural to myself, they would have seen me actually sleeping there. And then, the next day, he had a change of mind, but he couldn't act upon it. He was resisting that change. But that which I have done, I have done, do nothing. So he resisted it for nine days, and then he called me in and told me to bring a new application which I did and that day I was out so I tell you how it works this is the most practical law in the world he looks into the perfect law the law of liberty well doesn't that liberate you if you look into the law of liberty now what are you now the man the woman you really want to be but then you're in prison though you're not behind bars you are imprisoned by your present concept. You're not behind bars, you're going to go home tonight and sleep as the woman, as the man you really don't want to be. So you are in prison. Now look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere. Do not only be a hearer of what to do, do it. And you will be blessed in the doing. That's what scripture teaches. Go home and read it. I am not misquoting. I am quoting accurately from the epistle of James in the New Testament. And this is the story that I'm trying to tell everyone in the world. 
He said, I am not in prison. No, you're not in prison. Not physically. But you are in prison. You may today need money. And you say, oh, well, I'm still not like the fellows who are behind in uh, Sing Sing. All right, you're not behind jail doors. But you are still behind. Behind in rent. Behind in this. And the dunning notes from all the places where you charge, you are behind bars. You can't seem to find the necessary sum to pay them. All right. Look into the perfect law of liberty. That's the perfect law. Well, how do I do it? Rearrange the structure of your mind. The demagnetized piece of steel does not differ in substance from the magnetized. Only the arrangement of its molecules. And then one lifts up enormous weights when it's completely one-pointed. When all these molecules face one direction, it's a powerhouse. The other is scattered. So let not the double-minded man think that he will in any way receive from the Lord, you're told. The same first chapter. If the double-minded man comes, who is unstable in all his ways, let he not think he will receive anything from the Lord. What can you give a man who doesn't know what he wants? I've gone into a restaurant just to prove this principle. Sat down, said to the waiter, what would you like for a tip? And he's embarrassed. I said to my friend, I'll give him what he wants. Within reason, I'm not going to give him any hundred dollar bill, but I'll give him, if he said to me, a five dollar bill. He didn't order that which warranted a five dollar bill. And he was embarrassed and embarrassed and embarrassed. And all he expected was exactly what he got. He just didn't know. He just had no concept of putting something, because he didn't know it, so how could he put it to the test? So I am telling you, you rearrange the structure of your mind. That's all you do. It doesn't differ from Einstein's mind. It's only one mind. There's only one God. There's only one Lord. Listen to it. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all, through all, and in all. If he's in you, that's the same one with the one body, the one spirit. So I'm not using a different mind. It's the same mind, but differently arranged. Go into one room and you see that someone doesn't know what to do with their furniture. Bring someone in who knows how to set a room. Come back an hour later after she's through with it. And you will think you're in an diff entirely different home. My wife used to pull that on me all the time. I'd come home and think I've stopped into the, I've just stepped into this entirely strange apartment. And wonder if I'm really at home. And she was hiding some other place. She had completely rearranged the structure of the furniture. It looked like an entirely different home. But she had that sense how to do it. And so she did it. So, with what you have, all you need is exactly what you have. For you have the mind of God. It's not a different mind, the same mind. And you simply rearrange the mind by a mere assumption. What would the feeling be like? Were it true? That I am now the man that I want to be. Now the woman that I want to be. But you're, it's added, but persevere. You must persevere in it. If I call you now and you answer, it's one thing. Well, will you respond an hour later to the same call? Then if you persevere, you will. 
If now, an hour later, you think of yourself as you now, when you dare to assume that you are now the man that you want to be, an hour later, are you still assuming that state? If you're not, you're not persevering. You are the hero who looked into the mirror with his natural face and he saw it. Then he went his way and at once forgot what he looked like. So if one hour from now you're not still assuming that you are the man that you want to be, you've forgotten. You are the hearer and not the doer. And he warns us of the vast difference between being a hearer and being a doer. The doer acts. God only acts and is in existing beings or men. So bear in mind that your wonderful world is not bounded by your senses. You perceive far, far more than your sense, no matter how acute it is, could discover. Your senses can't discover what now you're capable of assuming that you are. Your senses dictate what reason will allow. And your reason, your senses are bound together. Go beyond it. For what you now know from experience, what you know from the past, will not be what you will know when you know more than you now know. But having done it and proven it, I know more than I did when I was bounded by my senses. When I couldn't get out of a certain island on time to meet a commitment in Milwaukee, I knew what I did in the army. I simply applied the identical thing, and I got out. When there was a long, long waiting list, thousands waiting for all the islands, and only two little ships, not big ships, two small little ships, one carrying up more than 60-odd passengers, and one carrying in 120 and thousands waiting, and they only came once a month into the island. One every 32 days, and one every uh, three and a half weeks. How long would it take to get them all out? I didn't ask anyone a favor. Didn't ask my brother, who was a powerful businessman in the island. He criticized me for not arranging passage back to America when I left America. That that's the place where you should have done it. That's the powerhouse of the world, New York City. That's where all these things are done. And you dare to leave New York City when you could arrange a round trip. And you come here on a one-way ticket. Well, I didn't ask any favors of him or any favors of any, any member of the family. I simply did exactly what I did in the army. And in 24 hours, I was called by the Alcoa Company and given my passage over thousands who are waiting. This is my concern why she did it or why someone else didn't get it in preference to mine. My name is down at the very bottom. I wasn't at the top. I'm at the bottom of the list. It isn't my concern. I look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. And I persevered. I sat in a chair in my hotel room and there I sat in the chair and soon I am next to the boat. I'm climbing up the gangplank. Just before we had a deep water harbor. So you had to go off the sea about maybe a half mile or a mile to sea on a little tender and then take the gangplank and, and go up to the ship. So I felt myself bobbing as you would on the ocean and then moving up the gangplank. I could smell the rawness of the sea. Got up to the top 
my mind wandered, I brought it back to them again and did it all over again. They wandered, brought it back to them again, kept on doing it over and over until finally I did it. I fell sound asleep sitting in the chair in the act of doing. Next day, Alcor calls me and gives me my passage for my wife and my little girl. So I'm telling you from experience, it doesn't fail, but we must not simply be hearers of the word. We must be doers of the word. For if you are a hearer and not a doer, you deceive yourself, he tells you. For we are the operant power. This law doesn't operate itself. It doesn't care if you're good, bad, or indifferent. Look around the world. Who would think that tonight someone serving life sentence in our jail is the same mind that sits in the White House? Who would think the one who sits now in the Vatican, that mind of the Pope is the same mind of the one who is groveling on his belly trying to kiss his hand? So on Sunday, there'll be Palm Sunday, and they'll do all these things on Palm Sunday, the holy palms. And then comes Friday, then comes Sunday. And all this will go on and have all the show, fabulous show. And he who is done being born on the backs of strong, strapping men does not differ from those who are his slaves bearing him. The same mind. But they have rearranged their mind to be slaves. And he has arranged his mind to be the father, to be Papa, the great Pope. Same mind. There is only one mind in the world. There aren't two minds. That's why I can tell you, I know that when he stands before you, he will know you as his father. And you will know him as your son. And because I know him, as my son are we not one mind are we not one being when the same being who called me father will one day call you father are we not the same father the same mind the same spirit the same body without loss of identity so I'm telling you tonight try it try it every moment of time you know tonight what you want to be. I don't care what you want to be. It's simply a rearrangement of the mind. And you rearrange the mind not through any study and any uh, so effort. It's simply a mere assumption. What do I want to be? Get it clear in my mind's eye. Well, then assume that I am it. Listen to the words in the book of Joel. Let the weak man say, I am strong. Let the weak man say, I am strong. That's in the book of Joel. Jehovah God. That's what the word would mean, Joel. You're called upon when you are dumb to assume that you are exactly what you want to be. Not dumb, because you don't want to be that. You want to be as free as the wind. Well, assume that you are. May I tell you in a way that no one knows you'll become it. But you must persevere. And the word perseverance is true. If I don't believe it, well then one second later, I've turned back to my former state and become once more Lot's wife, the pillar of salt. Salt is a preservative. In the old days, the only way to preserve something is to salt it. 
Not so long ago, when I was a little boy, we caught fish, an enormous quantity of fish, because we didn't have these enormous fleets catching our fish, so we had fish to burn, literally burn. If they didn't get them, get in before, say, three o'clock in the afternoon, what did they have? They could either put it onto the dung heap and make dung out of it, or clean it up and salt it. So they cleaned it up and salted it. It would keep indefinitely, for we had no refrigeration. So you salted the fish. Now we could have salt flying fish, if you wanted it that way. But fish that were not consumed by sundown was discarded. Use it for bait the next day, or use it in the dung heap. And fertilize the fields with it. So salt is a preservative. So when Lot's wife was turned to salt, she turned back and went back to her former state. And that is all that it means. You look back and became a pillar of salt. You turn back to the state you said you would leave behind you. And looking back, you were salty. You were preserved in it. So turn away from what you really want to be. Turn back, you're going to be salted in it. So I ask you to leave what you are unless you like what you are. Just portions of what you are today that you like. All right, wonderful. There are other portions that you do not like. Well, you don't have to give up the, everything in your living room and you rearrange the structure of it, the certain pieces that you'll keep. You may change this location, but you'll keep it. The same thing is true with the structure of the mind. You keep certain things and you let other things go. Take friends in your world who are not doing well, rearrange them in your mind's eye, and they're doing well. So put that part of the structure in your mind's eye. Rearrange the entire structure and dare to assume that it's true and walk in that assumption. And that assumption, though at the moment, is denied by reason and denied by your senses, if you persevere in it, it will harden into fact. This is the law of Scripture. That I came not to abolish, but to fulfill the Jewish law and the Jewish prophets. For there was no other Scripture in the first century but the Jewish Scriptures. So the word Jew is not placed before it to qualify it, but the only scripture that he knew. He came to fulfill the Jewish law. He reinterpreted the law psychologically and showed them exactly how it's done. So go out and do not abolish anything. Simply fulfill it. Fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets. The prophets, when they're fulfilled, that's done by sheer grace that comes that comes by promise and no one's going to stop it may I tell you but you could go on living in a state that you do not wish in this world but in spite of that you will still receive the promise because it isn't given to the one who is rich and deny the one who is poor but why remain poor and bat your head out morning, noon and night against the inevitable blows in this world I hope you do not wish money for the sake of money, but if you need money, well then apply this law. What would the feeling be like if it were true that I was now free of this pressure, free of it? Dare to assume that you are, and then persist in that assumption, and that assumption will harden into reality. So this is my lesson tonight. I think you have found it 
a very practical one. But I must remind you, you can either be the hearer of what you heard tonight and not the doer. It is my hope that you will be the doer of what you heard tonight. And that when you leave here, you leave here in the assumption, not waiting until you get home. Leave here in the assumption that you are already the man, the woman that you want to be. And then between here and home, think of the man that you have assumed that you are and let that assumption spring in your mind constantly. You are that man. Go to bed in that assumption. Maybe this night, as it did with me in the army, something will come and a voice will speak. And when vision breaks forth into speech, the presence of deity is assured. And maybe you will have confirmation that what you have dared to assume is I know in my case it came that way. But it will come whether it breaks forth into speech or not, if you persist in the assumption. Well, there we have it, dear friends. Another episode for the Akashic Records. It has been an honor to help you manifest your destiny. As always, we had some help in this episode. We started out listening to a chapter out of Neil Kramer's book, The Audio Cleaver. Next up was a short clip from an episode from my good friend C. Free's podcast, This Esoteric Life. Then we listened to the first chapter of Rudolf Steiner's A Way to Self-Knowledge and The Threshold of the Spiritual World. This audio is presented by Rudolf Steiner audio.com and finally we have Neville Goddard in his own words as he gives the lecture rearrange the mind put me on to him ever since then my life has not turned back I've been able to help bring to fruition so many of the things that I only imagined and I owe a lot of this to the knowledge given to me by Neville it just wouldn't be right if I didn't let you guys in on the secret to what this music is this is some of the most esoteric audible alchemy I've ever come across in my entire life Like, even the names, if you were trying to search the names of these songs, it would be absolutely impossible. There's there's hidden characters attached to the computer that I had no idea were possible until I saw the track list of this. You would have to see for yourself, but the name of the group is called The Space Between. The name of the project is called New Vision. Essentially, this is a hip-hop duo that has collaborated with an electronic producer. The hip-hop duo is a part of a group called Vendetta Kings. So, this is actually how you can find the music on YouTube. You'll have to go to Vendetta Kings' YouTube page. So, type in V-E-N-D-E-T-T-A, Vendetta Kings, K-I-N-G-Z. You have to scroll through some songs, but once you start seeing some interesting characters, 
you'll know that you're in the right place. So, I'll close this podcast with the third track from New Vision. This is Cody Wilcox of the Waking Life Podcast, sending infinite love and asking that you spread care. Just be. We could just be.